Thank you, everyone, for joining me today on Ask a Leader. I want to thank Heather for that seg. Um, I'm welcoming you to the July 16, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. The Sanford, Florida outcome was as predictable as it was unnerving. And I hold adherence of the ALEC, the American Legislative Executive Council, responsible for packaging the Stand Your Ground laws in over 20 states, the major, major player in this case in Sanford. A Texas A&M University study that found states with such laws have more homicides than states without them uh, includes a statistic that Florida justified homicides have tripled since the law was enacted in the year 2005. Enough of legislating, legislating while white, jeopardizing the lives of young males existing while black. For today's program, we move now on to international sector with Julie Fisher, who's written up her extensive non-governmental work in her book, Importing Democracy, The Role of NGOs in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina. And during the second half, we'll hear from Brad Johnson of Forecast the Facts on how some meteorologists continue to blow hot air. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a brief break. Stand at last where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. God of our That's Chip Days with Lift Every Voice and Sing. I suggest that's an anthem for budding democracies everywhere. Welcome back to my show. My first guest today is Julie Fisher, author of Importing Democracy, the Role of NGOs in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina, a book recently published by the Kettering Foundation. It's based on 100 and more interviews with the leaders of democratization NGOs. Despite country differences, South Africa and Argentina are struggling democracies, and Tajikistan is a dictatorship. Julie worked as a consultant to many international development agencies, evaluating both microenterprise projects and partnerships between international and indigenous NGOs, about which we shall hear and learn a great deal today. She taught comparative politics at Connecticut College and was lecturer at the Program on Nonprofit Organizations at Yale University. She spent 10 years as a program officer at the Kettering Foundation, a think tank in Dayton, Ohio. Her earlier two books, from which uh, her latest book is a logical extension, are The Road from Rio, Sustainable Development and the Non-Governmental Movement into the Third World, and Non-Governments, NGOs, and Political Development of the Third World. She earned her Bachelor's of Science at Pomona College and her Master's and Ph.D. degrees at Johns Hopkins. With a richly topical coverage, uh, helping us address a host of the operative concepts toward the dangerous hard work of democratic development, she comes today to us from uh, Portland, Maine. Welcome to the show, Julie Fisher. 
thank you for that spectacular introduction. I think it's the best I've had on all my interviews. <laughs> well, I'm... I do want to add that the book is available on Amazon and also on the Kettering website, kettering.org. And uh, I, I really want to enlarge a little on your concept of budding democracies, because I don't think there's any country on earth that is a full democracy. Democracy is a goal, and democratization is a process. And these organizations really help that process and give people hope. And I think that's probably the most important thing that they do. Um, and I can give you some examples if you're interested in some of their very concrete well, achievements. Well, we will. We will, Dr. Fisher. But let's first, I'm, I am, as I, I want to say, I'm torn between digging deeply into your work and then covering the latest developments around the world yeah, with your research sure. mind. So first, let's just take up why you chose South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina. Would you tell us about the common thread between these three countries, since I think many of us dismiss the suitability of these and other places as capable of carrying out the democratic process? Well, they all have a a number of strong democratization NGOs, or non-governmental organizations. We call them nonprofits in this country. And they were among the many um, international visitors to the Kettering Foundation while I was there. And actually, I noticed democratization NGOs in these meetings we had from all over the world. But I picked these three countries because they were on different continents, because they were very different countries, and because they seemed to have a lot of very energetic people in this field of promoting democracy or promoting democratization. Okay. So... uh Yes. In other words, the phenomenon is the same in many, many countries. The countries themselves are very, very different. Very. Well, uh, tell us um, now with your title, um, using the, the operative word here, importing. In other words, uh, tell us what you mean by that. Who's importing what and how? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you know, we tr- the U.S. tried to export democracy militarily to Iran and Afghanistan, Iraq, excuse me, and it, it just didn't work very well. <laughs> We're not succeeding with Iran either, but that's another story, uh, particularly militarily. And so what I've discovered in talking to these people originally, before I even started the book, was that they said, we have to import democratic ideas, but we have to pick the ones that work for our own country. And also, we have traditions in our own country. A lot of countries have a tradition, for example, of village councils where decisions are made. The, the government at the top may be quite dictatorial, but there are local grassroots organizations which behave rather democratically. And so people who run these democratization NGOs, who founded them, want to preserve that. They want to strengthen that, and they want to add to it creative ideas from abroad. And they aren't all from Europe or the U.S., the ideas. For example, in Brazil, there uh, is a very innovative process that got started in Brazilian cities, which was called participatory municipal budgeting, that got citizens directly involved in making the tough choices that any municipal budget director or city council has to make. And that was a very creative process. It's worked very well in Brazil. And some of the organizations I studied have imported that idea. So that's an example. Of well, but there, there are also ideas imported from the past, from the Enlightenment, obviously. Enlightenment values continue to resonate all over the world. So you know what I'm, I struggle with with that definition is we, we think of importing meaning it's coming. Uh, we're taking something out of somewhere and putting it 
uh, bringing it back to us. But I'm thinking it's a, like in, you talk about the the cultural uh tribal domain in Tajikistan, I see it yeah. as there it's nothing's getting imported. I see it as sort of it's just it's tapping in, expanding in with the existing cultural frame of reference to uh, open up that democratic process. Yeah. I don't see yeah. anything changing jurisdictions. I just see it uh, it's there's a nurturing of what already exists in the place where a um, an autocracy is needing to be dismantled. Yeah, let's take the example of Tajikistan. Uh, and let's take women's rights as yes. part of democratization. And there's sort of two big issues that have come up in Tajikistan. One is domestic violence, which we know exists everywhere and is a violation of women's basic human rights. And the other one was a pretty widespread process of sex trafficking, mostly to Dubai from Tajikistan. Now, these democratization NGOs got together with other NGOs, many of which work mostly on socioeconomic development, and they created a coalition, and they lobbied this dictatorial government, and they said, sex trafficking is bad for Tajikistan. We have to stop it. They got a law through the parliament, and the executive signed it, in spite of being a dictatorship. So it's an example of a concrete democratic advance, even in an authoritarian country. So it sounds like there was a cultural appeal made yes. to the author. It wasn't even an economic one, sort of a, our cultural sense of pride. What are we doing uh, uh, casting exactly. off? Exactly, and when we talk about cultures, sometimes when we talk about all the negative aspects of sexism in traditional cultures, we let's remember half the population are women, you know, so they don't feel that way. They aren't thrilled with the tradition, the right. negative traditions, let's say. Right. Well, I want to let everybody know, for those of you just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, where my guest is Dr. Julie Fisher, expert and scholar on civil society and democracy, talking about this heady work of intrepid organizers uh, that were engaged in democratization and non-governmental organizations, which we're always calling NGOs. And when you see INGOs, that's talking about the international that's the that's the exporting going on, and the importing is the local NGOs. We could, I guess, well, and, at, and and they're also, you know, when I say exporting can be peaceful. Let's let's acknowledge right. that. Uh, and there's a difference sometimes between international NGOs and official donors. You know, uh, not necessarily that international NGOs are better at this, uh, but again, it depends on how they connect with people locally. It depends on whether they do their homework. In fact. The last chapter of my book is, is basically recommendations for international actors of all kinds. And uh, I think the key to all my very specific recommendations is, and underlying all of them, is the notion that donors have not always done their homework. They say, oh, we have this idea, we're going to teach you how to do it. Instead of saying, let's find out what people in that country are already doing about democratization. Right. Maybe we could support that. And that's the kind of shift in donor mentality that has to occur. That's one reason I wrote the book, a major reason. A major. Well, you, you've already given us uh, an example of what has occurred in Tajikistan. Could you give us some, uh, some concrete examples of how democratization have cr contributed in both South Africa and in Argentina? Right. Well, in Argentina, there was a coalition. Again, coalitions of these organizations, especially with other civil society or, or NGOs, do, have, have done some pretty powerful things. In Argentina, um, when the president wanted to nominate someone to the Supreme Court, 
he just sent the name over to the head of the parliament, and the head of the parliament signed off on it, and that was it, and they were on the Supreme Court. This coalition, headed by the uh, Civil Democracy Association, uh, actually lobbied with other NGOs to get that practice changed and to open the process of Supreme Court nominations to public hearings, just the way we have here. Now, that was their idea. It uh, wasn't somebody from the U.S. saying, oh, you ought to have public hearings. That was their idea. And, in fact, they won. Uh, now, um, all Supreme Court nominations have to go to an open public hearing sponsored by the Parliament, just the way we have it in the Congress. And one of the first results of this decision was that five Supreme Court justices, sitting Supreme Court justices in Argentina, resigned. Wow. Now, you can imagine why. I don't know all the specifics, but apparently they didn't want their record held up to public scrutiny. Wow, the bright light can um, set yeah. policy. Transparency. It can, exactly. And what about South Africa? Well, we, South we know Africa that I just... is... I want to talk a little about what I one of the concepts in the book, which is loyal opposition, which is a, yes. probably the toughest part of the democratization process. Because even in, in South Africa, which is a democracy, yes. and elected leadership, etc., uh, one party is so dominant, the ANC, that it's very hard for a partisan opposition to develop. And what some of the democratization NGOs have done, actually in all three countries, is to say, okay, first of all, we're a little wary of working with parties. That's a problem, and that's one of the criticisms I have of democratization NGOs, because I think they could work with a group of right. parties. But um, what they have done instead is to say, we have to strengthen civil society as a whole so that it can play this role of the loyal opposition. And in South Africa, they did this through something called the Treatment Action Campaign. You probably know, because you were in South Africa, I know, about the really ghastly policies against HIV-AIDS under the previous president in South Africa. Tabo Nubeki, yeah who did not, I mean, he was good on a lot of other issues, but he was terrible on HIV-AIDS, and that's really a big issue. And uh, this coalition was called the Treatment Action Coalition. And again, it was led by democratization NGOs, but included NGOs that work on health, on development, etc. And they lobbied, and they basically were successful as a kind of loyal opposition in changing the policy of the South African government. Too late, I wish they had been able to do it earlier, but they did change the policy. And that's not just a change in health policy. That's a change in the way people work together to make policy change as a democracy and to strengthen that aspect of democracy in South Africa. And uh, and I also um, I couldn't help but notice when you're talking about we've got the three essential comments about loyal opposition, civil society, and political culture. And in civil society, you make repeated references to community radio. I've heard every time it kept yes. coming up, mostly in South Africa, where where the media plays I think the largest role uh, of those three case studies that you gave us. And and just while we're still on the topic of South Africa, I just want to pay respect. It was almost 20 years to this mm. week when Amy Beale was killed oh, yeah. in action with trying herself to... Uh, to become a, a change agent, change to help people change. In the yeah. democratic process. And she 
she, her family hailed from Newport Beach. They're uh, now in the Palm Desert, but the Amy Beale Foundation still thrives in so many different ways. And I think uh, you might be able to say a little bit about their model as an NGO importing democracy before we move on into some other topics. Well, um, I know that there's a, a high school in Albuquerque and another school in Santa Fe that have her, her name. And I don't know a lot about their work in South Africa uh, in recent years, other than I know they work at, with at-risk youth. Uh, and when I, I have to admit, when I went on the uh, website of the foundation, it was like four years old, and I wasn't able to find, you know, they're updated. Although when I went on Facebook, I see that they're still active. So... Um, I don't know a lot about them, but uh, they would certainly fit in with the kind of thing that that I'm doing because they do work with youth and they work with youth in poverty areas. And frankly, um, you know, if South Africa South Africa is in some ways the most advanced of the three countries politically. I mean, yes. it has the best court system of the three countries, hands down. You know, honest, straightforward, etc. Um, but poverty and socioeconomic uh, inequality in South Africa are terrible. And that can bring democracy down if it's not addressed. Right. As you say, it's, fo- it's turned the focus away from building democratic institutions on to dealing with the economic disparities with such pent-up demand for terrible. the essential services. And, and uh, you know, I, I do write about what I call socioeconomic rights in the book because that's yes. part of democracy. And I don't think, I mean, the, in this morning's paper, there's an article about Kagolema Modlante, who is now the deputy president, and he is very concerned about, uh, I think he's sort of gone against President Zuma in some ways, but he's very concerned yes. about the fact that if these socioeconomic issues are not addressed, um, then South African democracy is at risk. And people in South Africa that I interviewed told me that he is one of the most capable uh, leaders in the ANC. I mean, that he's very smart and that he absolutely gets it in terms of what has to happen. But, you know, I think Zuma sort of represents the more traditional uh, leadership type. It's not that he hasn't done anything good, but he's, he's from a different background. He's from a traditional, more tribal background. Right. And that makes a difference. Well, it, it's uh, and so there's been a like uh, there's been a trend of uh, from the magnanimity of Nelson Mandela oh, to some heavens. the uh, <laughs> the sort of uh, per- peculiar leadership of Thabo Mbeki to the um, sort of idiosyncratic kind of uh, yes. style of Zuma. So if the you have yes. pause for some hope with a reversal of that um, of those leadership dynamics, then uh, but it's it seems to be it's almost a generation now who've been around since right. uh, the African National Congress took power in South Africa, that if they're seeing that not enough is being delivered, uh, there is a tremendous pressure cooker building in that Oh, yeah. No question about it. Um, And I would just add, so that I want to get it a little beyond South Africa for a minute. Yes, we are there. We're headed there. (laughs) Yeah, well, just in general, how many political leaders in the world are of the caliber of Nelson Mandela? We don't have that kind of political leader in many, I mean, it's rare. It's exceptionally rare. It's yeah. and that you know, I think if we had that, these organizations that I wrote about would would have a far easier and faster time of trying to change things. Yes, but that's not the world we live in, unfortunately. No, no. Nelson, Man- the Nelson Mandela's of the world are extremely rare. 
Well, to segue away, um, it's, um, as been the case in Tajikistan, um, will the same uh, sorts of dynamics take place in Syria that you talk about, uh, and I quote you, after the Civil War, yeah. police forces were filled with combatants who were right. aggressive and psychologically right. disturbed. Is that what we're seeing uh, face, coming down in the Syrian? I'm afraid so. And, you know, Tajik, the Tajik Civil War, which I write about in the book, and as you know, I write about the sustained dialogue process that helped end it. I mean, here's an example of something happening in civil society to end a civil war, which was then copied, and actually whole paragraphs of the civil society agreement were put into the United Nations official peace process, and it greatly shortened the time that it would have taken the United Nations to work out some kind of a settlement like this. So, uh, and I, I know that in your email you asked about a man named John Paul Lederer. Lederach, yes. Lederach, sorry. That's right. And um, I know that I, I emailed my colleague, Hal Flanders, who was kind of the architect of the, of the sustained dialogue in Tajikistan. Exactly. And he was, apparently Lederach was very important in that process. I don't know all the details, but he's now at Notre Dame. Yes. And I just wanted, since you had asked about him, to mention him. Right, and he was actually—it's a—it's uh, a digression, leaders, uh, listeners. But let's uh, bear with me. He was John Paul Lederach, uh, famous Mennonite uh, negotiator. Uh, right. Was actually here to uh, settle our nerves that were all um, a flare in October of two thousand and one, uh-huh. and talking about various um, conflicts. I want to say dilemmas that the uh, George Bush administration was facing uh, with labels, and uh, but he had used examples of how he was boots on the ground, negotiating, mediating the difference between these clans and tribes in Tajikistan. And yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he, he was walking; he was a human um, shield for getting one of the negotiating leaders out alive from yeah. a, 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 yeah. a, because there was tremendous pressure for those leaders not to be even talking to the other side. So, Well, uh, Hal Saunders likes to tell the story, of, and it's in the book, of at one point, you know, at, the, at first the two sides, the two sort of very rough coalitions that were involved in conflict with each other in Tajikistan, uh, were practically screaming at each other. They wouldn't sit down. They wouldn't talk. Right. And 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 somebody, uh, it, and this was not Lederach or Hal Saunders. This was somebody in the group itself said, "What are we going to do after the war settled with refugees, internal refugees, in other words, which, you know, not outside the borders of the country, but internal to the country?" And that very practical question got everybody to sort of focus and say, oh, what are we going to do? And that was, according to Hal Saunders, the turning point in the dialogue. After that, people began to talk and began to sit down with each other and began to iron out all the thorny issues that they had to. So, you know, conflict resolution is a very important part of what I call political culture. If you have a political culture where disputes are solved only by violence, which is true in most of the world, uh, you have a problem with your political culture. It's not democratic. So I, I focus a lot on that and, all, of course, on the corruption issue, which is also part of political culture. Huge, huge. And that's what's happening in, uh, certainly in Tajikistan. It's, it's happened, it's corruption is a, an interference, as you talk about, in Argentina. Well, I'm, I'm going to postpone, I'm going to ask you to come back later for uh, another appearance on the show to talk, unpackage what's going on in some of the other 
fragile uh-huh. democracies. Uh, there's more playing out. There's what we could take it up in a couple of months. Students are back in school and they can hear you out their way now. But I, I just want I think close the interview with talking about whether um, you see as we talk about. Um, implications for foreign policy and foreign assistance, are you at least heartened by our State Department's uh, investment in intensive instruction of Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, and other languages for possibly more meaningful engagement on the ground versus surveilling overhead? Uh, Much better, yes, I agree. And I think that the more we can educate people intensively, not only in language, but in you know, in the realities of life in a, in a particular country that they're going to be working in, the better job they're going to do. And But I think beyond that, there's an attitudinal change that has to occur. Yes. Which is, I don't, I shouldn't go in there knowing it all. You know, that's really, I mean, if you're going to change policies in a factory in the U.S., and you go in and you say, here's what you have to do, people are going to resent it. People, help has to be defined by the user. <laughs> right. Right. And that's what is really, that attitudinal change is just as important as the educational part of it. Well, as we a- approach the closure, but we're not quite quite finished yet, we're listening to Dr. Julie Fisher, expert and scholar on civil society and democracy, having recently published her uh, book, Importing Democracy, the Role of NGOs in South Africa, Tajikistan, and Argentina. And uh, we're, we're talking um, about the conflicts around the world. Uh, I want for people to know, you, you mentioned in the very beginning about Amazon being one available mm-hmm. source for um, picking up your book. And also you have uh, your own website, yes. uh, importingdemocracy.org. And there, folks, you can follow Julie Fisher's blog. and uh, You can also order the book through my website. Order the book through there. And uh, we, what I do want, though, to do justice. There's so much happening. And so uh, in, I think even, uh, even one individual's interpretation keeps changing with more uh, of the dynamic playing out in Egypt. And I really would rather, instead of going uh, quick, swift, through those yep. uh, developments there, just to sign on to having you back in our saddle here with um, a, a deeper discussion of those uh, playing out there, and um, I'll I'll bone up more, and we'll we'll just okay. we'll, we'll boil and that down. I just down. want to say that I'm going on the NPR affiliate here in Maine tomorrow to talk about Egypt. So, okay. along with a friend of mine. Kathleen Sutherland, who was born in Egypt and really knows a lot about Egypt. So you might want to have the two of us on together. Well, okay. Every, all listeners, you're hearing us arrange a show right on air. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll take that. More details <laughs> up later. So, I, Kath, uh, Julie Fisher, I really appreciate your being on Ask a Leader today and um, presenting such a, a clear case helping us break down what those components are. And I will assure you, I, along with all the other readers, are constantly reflective as we read your text, how our, the democratization process is something that we attend to here in the U.S. of A. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the interview, and you seem to be extremely well prepared for well, it. I've, well, you gave us lots to work on, so <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you, and I look forward to talking with you again. Okay, great. We are going to now um, go on a brief break, and I will be back with Randy Johnson with the um, forecasting the facts 
and uh, some interesting developments going on uh, with uh, Eric Schmidt over at Google. Thanks for staying with us. everybody. Thank you for staying with me for the second half, a little less than second half of the show at this point. My um, last week, I learned that Google CEO Eric Schmidt was throwing a little $25,000 plate fundraiser for Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma to take this up and move us out of the puzzled state and into some clarity is my next guest, Brad Johnson, who is the campaign manager of Forecast the Facts. Forecast the Facts is a grassroots human rights organization focused on getting the truth out about climate change, that temperatures are increasing, human activity is largely responsible, and that our world is already experiencing the effects. Forecast the Facts was founded in January 2012, which Brad joined shortly thereafter. Brad was previously the editor for Think Progress Green and uh, uh, dot kind of qualified to talk about global uh, climate dynamics. Brad completed a bachelor's degree in math and physics from Amherst College and a master's degree in geosciences from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He comes us to us today from Berkeley, California. Welcome to the show, Brad Johnson. It's great to be with you. Well, first, a little bit about how forecast the facts came together. Um, it was uh, founded, as you said, last year, and uh, as a project of the Citizen Engagement Lab, which is a, a, an organization that does uh, primarily online grassroots organizing. And the the kind of the name of the organization comes from our ongoing effort to get TV uh, weathercasters to tell the truth about climate change. Unfortunately. A significant percentage of them are global warming deniers, and uh, weathercasters are probably the most influential communicators of science in general and on the topic of climate change for most Americans. So it's a real problem that when those people either are um, not telling the truth or not talking about climate change. Well, I'll, I'll say, I mean... Let's face it. They've got they've got the graphic. They've got the snazzy graphic that pull the eye. There's so much traction. You've got a visual and you've got a verbal message going on. There is a lot of power behind what those very telegenic, uh, uh, you know, high technology displays are 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 doing for uh, are receiving the message. It's huge. Yeah, I mean, and I think more. It's just a matter of that. Everybody actually cares deeply about the weather on a day-to-day basis. Pretty much. And often it's something that actually uh, our lives are um, at stake uh, sometimes. I mean, that's so it's important. You know, weathercasters actually play an important role in society. And uh, they've, hopefully, you know, they ha- in other words, American people trust trust those people 
to help them with their daily lives and also to keep them safe uh, in the case of emergency and to main, earn to deserve that trust, they need to be talking about the, the kind of the very uh, unavoidable fact that our activities are changing the weather and making it more dangerous. Well, I think it's time now at this point. We name names. Uh, there are many uh, around the country, uh, Baltimore, D.C., New York, to uh, San Diego. And let's uh, maybe you could tell us what some of these forecasters are, are up to. Weathercasters, that is. You're the forecasters. They're the weathercasters. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, I'm happy to let people talk, you know, use whatever terminology. Uh, I mean, <laughs> one, one example is there's Tony Pan, who's a weathercaster, and in Baltimore at the WBAL station, and um, our local members there are uh, asking the station management to to correct the misinformation that Tony Pan has been uh, promoting over the last several years, and you know to set a policy of having science guide uh, guide their reporting, uh, and you have. I mean, in San Diego, you have John Coleman, who's uh, a highly influential global warming denier. And, I mean, and unfortunately, this is a problem throughout the country that you have. There are, and but I want to point out that there yes. are um, a few weathercasters across the country who also have been doing a good job and have been talking about climate change on air and how it's affecting uh, their viewers. Uh, you're talking like Mike Nelson in... Uh, Denver to Jim Gandy in South Carolina. So this is something that this is an entirely solvable problem. And uh, if you go to forecastthefacts.org, uh, there's a section called Weathercaster Watch, which allows you to contact your local your local weathercasters. And you know, so this is something that we we you know we we believe that uh, the most there's been a lot of attempts to get over the years to get uh, meteorologists to change their tune by teaching them the facts, but they that's not what's motivating them. It's really about do they believe that their viewers want to hear the truth or not, right. and that's why uh, you know public participation is such a big, uh, is kind of the driving force of the work that we do. Well, that is a, a powerful measure that folks can go to forecast the fact uh, website and get the crib sheet and um, embrace the uh, the local broadcasting network station's uh, ability to uh, address that. Um, that so we but we will give uh, Mike, it's Mike Nelson and uh, Jim Dandy their due for uh, for doing a, a very very good job and uh, taking it using that platform as a basis for improving uh, global climate change literacy. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and actually that's one thing that we've done is uh, our local members in, uh, have signed thank you cards and delivered them personally to the station when, when uh, weather catchers have talked, about, uh, when have talked about climate change on the air. And so he's given them little climate caster thank you cards yeah. and uh, you know and that's in in you know this is this is something is i mean it really is as simple as that uh, uh the t- tv tv world is i mean it's very a ratings driven business and yes. but one thing i've learned from like uh we've gone to meetings of the american meteorological society which unfortunately hasn't uh, really done anything to combat this problem uh 
but I've talked with uh, these, you know, TV weather people uh, on all sides of the spectrum, and they 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 care deeply about uh, the job that they're doing, and they really need, and they feel a lot of pressure, and so they really do need to learn that, um, you know, people are watching and listening, people are watching, and, and people up. want them. You know, they they are convinced that every no one wants to hear the truth about global warming, and they need to actually hear that. Uh, you know that the facts matter. Yes, for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Brad Johnson, campaign manager for Cast Effects. You're on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all over where there's weather on KUCI.org. When we have we have podcast two of this show and other shows and uh, other programs here on KUCI. So um, out there, let's go. Let's now tilt to what's gone on last week. Uh, what's the big financial deal here? Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, is helping out Senator Jim Inhofe. For those who are not completely aware, there he's the senior, <laughs> more heft, senator of Oklahoma. And uh, why our community and others ought to be concerned about this fundraiser? You make more well, sense out of it than when we well, last talked about this. I've, I mean, even though I'm, I, and many, I'm sure most of your audience is well aware, Senator Inhofe is perhaps the the world's most prominent global warming denier, certainly in the United States. Uh, he's even written a book calling, I think it's called The Greatest Hoax. Uh, and it, so he's a just a out-and-out conspiracy theorist. His, his biggest funders are Coke Industries and the oil and gas industry. And he's, for decades, uh, promoted global warming denial in the most kind of vicious and virulent ways. Uh, he also happens to be uh, uh, homophobic. Uh, he's, let's just say, not exactly respectful of women's rights. Um, he, he's, he's, I think most people would, in, you know, he's not the, the nicest guy in the Senate. Um, but the Eric Schmidt has and this is the, one of the things about Google, you know, Eric Schmidt has gone out and, you know, said that people who deny the, the facts about climate change uh, will be seen as liars. And so it was really troubling when we learned that uh, Google's Washington, D.C. headquarters was holding a 250 to $2,500 a plate fundraiser for Jim Inhofe last week. And so we promoted the news of that, um, wrote some stories about it, and started a petition asking uh, the CEO, Larry Page, to um, cancel the fundraiser. Uh, unfortunately, the fundraiser happened, but we were able, uh, we worked with Greenpeace and Credo and held a protest outside the fundraiser. Uh, it was actually pretty funny. Then over the weekend, Jim Inhofe, wrote a another fundraising email in which he complained about the protest um, and saying, you know, Google is standing with me, not those liberal environmentalists. And I think that's it kind of shows exactly what the problem is here, is that, um, you know, Google has the corporate model of don't be evil. Uh, they've done a lot of work uh, on green energy uh, and supporting 
LGBT rights and, you know, have taken at least what a clear public position uh, against lying. Um, so what gives? And so it's really troubling seeing them raising money for uh, a politician who stands for everything that they claim to oppose. But, I mean, seriously, Brad, what what gives? How, how does Eric Schmidt justify this kind of uh, well, Yeah, I support? mean, well, one thing is, is that, like, it's this is likely not something that, I mean, you know, it's a large corporation. Uh, the lobbying shop is run by Susan Molinari, who uh, is a former Republican representative and is a Republican operative. Um, so, I mean, uh, people like Eric Schmidt and Larry Page have responsibility. I mean, Schmidt's the chairman, um, and, you know, and so Larry Page is the person who's directly responsible for these types of things. Um, but, uh, you know, whether they actually made an affirmative decision to, like, go forward with this, that they certainly have the responsibility for it. I mean, Google has a data center in Oklahoma that employs about 100 people. Um, so, you know, they have they have economic interest in the state where, it, you know, that Inhofe represents. And that's the, like their logic is they're basically saying, um, you know, our ethics don't apply um, if we have some kind of minor business interest uh, is kind of their approach to this. Well, they're, they're splitting the baby, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll have to look at a filing later to know how much money was raised. I do know that um, as of last month that uh, Senator Inhofe has already raised $1.2 million, and that's before all the uh, super PACs start to unleash their, uh, you know, campaigns to, uh, you know, saturate the, the media up the 2014 election cycle where uh, Senator Inhofe yeah, is up I mean, for re-election. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And this is, it's not like this is, uh, it's not like Google is like actually, you know, materially helping Inhofe. They're, they're helping Inhofe by lending their brand to it's huge. That's huge. Um, that's, that's what the, you know, and that, and the whole thing is, is if they really want, uh, you know, evidently the lobbying shop, of, the lobbying arm of Google wants Google's brand to be associated with um, global warming denial, with homophobia, you know, uh, with opposition to women's rights. That's that's what they want Google's brand to be associated with. I'm pretty sure it's not what Google's employees want. I'm pretty sure it's not what Google's customers want. And, like, it shouldn't be what Google's shareholders want. Uh, like, even the, the idea, global warming isn't just a threat to people who don't have the internet. Uh, it's a threat to all of us. And uh, that's, you know, and that's not even according to me. That's according to Google itself. Right. Uh, and I mean, and that's the other thing is Inhofe is, a lot of his global warming denial has come in the form of like direct attacks against scientists. And uh, that, you know, the anti-science message of Inhofe is so, uh, Kind of counter to uh, Google's viability as a you know I mean it's a tech company it's an innovation company like it employ the number of PhDs employed by Google is very high right um, and these are exactly the people that Inhofe attacks. There is certainly a it's not an asymmetry it's just a it's a confounder <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't make sense and I it's I've, just bad business. It's yes yeah. Well, I, I, while we're we're going to send everybody to the uh, there is the website forecastoffacts.org. Uh, 
with plenty of resources. And I have to always uh, just mention, I mentioned it in previous times when we've talked about global climate change, what a terrific book from the University of San Diego, University of California, San Diego's Naomi Oreskes, Eric Conway's book, The Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscure the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. And those those obscuring the truth, those are the ones that Mr. Uh, Inhofe is hanging his legislative oh, yeah. hat yeah, on. Yeah, you can read all about Inhofe in that book. Right. And, that, and that's the other thing is Google isn't just funding Inhofe. They're funding a lot of the other organizations that are mentioned in that book, like the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation uh, and the Conservative Political Action Commit Conference. So Google has Google's political arm has decided that it wants to be part of the corporate machine that is financing global warming denial, and it's really troubling. Well, on that very searing... That's why we're fighting back. That's why we're fighting. On that searing, searing note, I do want to thank you, Brad Johnson, of Forecast Effects, for being on Ask a Leader, and uh, we'll stay tuned. We'll watch and see what's going on. That association is a very strong one, and it's it's uh, going to be powerfully played, so stay tuned, folks, with what that's all about. Brad Johnson, thanks for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you, and sign our petition. Okay, okay. Well, I can't do a call to action on my community radio, but you can, you can suggest that's a good place for people to go, so thanks again. So what we're going to do now is take up a few announcements and uh, just to let you know, uh, in terms of global climate change, what little thing you can do on the, the, glo- the local level, we have uh, in uh, Santa Ana, Saturday and Sunday of this week from 9 until 3, the Episcopal Church of the Messiah at 631 North Main Street in Santa Ana. They are collecting your electronics. That is all the screen gear, computers, monitors, televisions, cell phones. They're collecting all of those. So if you would like more information, you can uh, get a hold of them at, um, let me get the... um, I'm not sure I have a website here. Uh, you can call uh, 1-800-780-0347, or you can visit online allgreenrecycling.com so that you can uh, do your part since uh, some of the bigger cheeses are, are making a little bit dip more difficult for us to remain enlightened and engaged and productive. So I'll uh, talk with you next week uh, when we go- we'll take up... Uh, with the UCI Drama Department, director Eli Simon, about summer theater series stage here at UCI, the New Swan Theater. Eli, and I will also pay tribute to Dudley Knight, originally cast in the lead role of this year's production of King Lear. He recently and suddenly passed away. Also, we'll have in the studio two University High School newspaper co-editors, Shireen Barukim and Abby George. Now it's time to take the over, let George Sr. Rosales take over the mic with George Hadahat. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.